Can anything good come from my neighborhood? How am I going to live? Is God calling me to life? Patrick Reyes is a practical theologian and educator. He serves as Director of Strategic Partnerships for Doctoral Initiatives at the Forum for Theological Exploration. In this interview with Sherry Osteen, Patrick expands on his work published in the recent book, Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. Drawing on stories from his own life, Patrick explores the life-and-death nature of vocational discernment for those living day-to-day in communities of violence. Patrick was awarded the 2019 Hispanic Theological Initiative Book Prize for this book. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Pat, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. So we are talking about your book that came out last year titled Nobody Cries When We Die, uh, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. So set the stage for us. What's the origin story of this book? Uh, The origin story is um, spiritual autobiography, memoir, kind of a theological rendition of vocation. And so all that starts with my story, you know, growing up. Um, And I was telling one of the stories in public, um, actually for the organization I work for currently, Forum for Theological Exploration, at a regional discernment retreat with young adults. And our senior research fellow, uh, Dory Baker, heard the story I tell about uh, witnessing gun violence in my home community of Salinas and approached me right after she heard it um, out loud and said, hey, would you consider writing a book? Um, about your experience and what you think of vocation and theology and all that. And I, I had a lot of hesitation to even write any words down. I told her that, you know, given my kind of family orientation, being a Latino who's very grounded in my community, that I want to write a communal book. I wanted it to be with a bunch of uh, folks and trying to honor the stories of the community I came out of. And when I started writing the process, it really kind of, it was that. It was, you know, I had family voices, I had community voices, and as it kind of morphed over time, you know, it takes a long time to write a book. They helped give shape to what became a kind of reflection back on my life around um, how I think about vocation, how I got there. So the genesis was in community uh, back in Salinas, California, uh, Bakersfield, California, where all the races live, um, to really reflect back what we mean. Um, what I say in the book is, you know, the call to life. How, how was I called to life? So can you tell us just a little bit about your community in Salinas, and a little bit of the story that you tell as a way into your consideration of vocation. Salinas, if, uh, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with it uh, through uh, John Steinbeck is probably the most noted writer from uh, the space. It's mainly agricultural, uh, majority Latino. uh, When I was growing up there, you know, 92% Latino. And it it is a space of beauty and wonder just east of uh, Monterey, but also because of where it sits, south of Silicon Valley, it's a pretty poor space, um, similar to the Central Valley, which is just um, on the other side of California. There's just not a lot of jobs, opportunities, or economic development. So a lot of stuff comes with that. Um, so at the time I was growing up, Salinas had one of the highest rates of gun and gang violence per capita in the entire country. Um, and Well, part of the stories I was telling was around both abuse at home, stuff I was experiencing through a non-family member and trying to survive just the everyday abuse, but also what was happening in the community around uh, gangs in particular and being a witness and bystander to 
uh, seeing a little girl uh, be shot and how much that formed and shaped me as a person, as a human, and, and how um, challenging that was to see an innocent life taken uh, from our community. And then you know, subsequently going to too many funerals of young people um, that died too early and trying to make sense of that in the sense of vocation and call. What does it mean to be one of the few in my community to make it out? Uh, what does it mean to even leave in the first place? And the uh, survivor's guilt that comes along with that. But then also trying to honor the stories and narratives of people who held me and, and held me accountable and also called me to, to life and called me to do something to, to give back to my community in a really uh, powerful way. So, I, you know, I try to honor my grandma and my father and my uh, the Christian brothers who all, I would say, in the, in the book really s- saved my life. And how old were you when you witnessed that? As a teenager, I was 15. Um, so, you know, dealing with all, all the stuff 15-year-old boys deal with on, on top of that violence, you know, all the social hormonal changes, yeah. fury. There's no sense of, I'm going to choose a vocation of survival in that moment, right? No, There's a- it's just survival. That's all it is. I mean, it's... Um, and in my community, you know, machismo is a real thing. So trying to be a strong young brown uh, Chicano man long before I was ever a man, you know, that it's, that's a challenge that we were, I was trying to wrestle with as a vocation and reflecting back and the kind of internal turmoil that that causes to say um, why I want to say that a vocation is called a life because that before any of that stuff and before I discern what I want to do with my life, what job I want to have, the type of life I want to live, um, in those moments where uh, life was literally on the line, there's still something about vocation. If we can't discern vocation in that moment, it's not worth discerning at all. So I wanted to say what is in these moments where there are most, where life was uh, on the brink um, or when my life was on the brink, you know, where is God in that moment and what is God calling to me in that moment? And for me, it was in those in those moments of survival, it's, it's just that. It's about just living and breathing and finding food and shelter, these basics and as a, as a person who was educated in a theological academy, everything I was reading at the time didn't reflect any of that reality, uh, didn't reflect the idea that surviving was enough. Um, it was all abstract kind of thought, you know, take time to discern your call and all that. But there's a very immediacy um, that came with my growing up. And I, I want to honor that and say that's okay. You know, for people who are trying to survive, that sometimes that's just enough. Um, you can get to thriving after you've survived, but God is calling us to live. And for you, as I think it's, I think I read in the book, that's not a solo act. So who are some of the people who kind of called you into that survival? Yeah, so interesting. So, I, you know, part of, um, yeah, I would say my grandmother, Grandma Reyes, uh, Carmen Reyes, who my daughter is the uh, fifth Carmelita in our in our family, um, named after her. She didn't just do it for me. I mean, I kind of tried to honor her as best I could that she did that for um, everyone in our family, um, you know, her house, they had a, you know, one and a half bedroom house in Bakersfield, California. Um, she had six kids, tons of cousins. This is in my dad's generation, tons of cousins all living with them under the same roof. And then when my generation came up, all my cousins and me at some point probably spent at least a little bit of time living with them. She was probably the first person to call all of us to life. You know, she was the matriarch and kind of the held uh, kind of central place in our family. And my father definitely lived into that uh, for me. You know, he was, you know, the best dad in the world, pushed me towards education, gave me all the access to opportunities that I needed, um, which included, uh, which is one of the first stories is Christian brothers who 
Um, I went to, you know, Christian Brother High School, junior high and high school. And when all this kind of abuse and violence I was witnessing was kind of springing up in my life, you know, I had Christian brothers who said, this is a place for you. This is a home. You're welcome here. And and that really kind of called me to life. And I tried to tie that to vocation because, you know, I, I think about these thinkers and writers who talk about vocation, who I love reading, like Parker Palmer, who, and Let Your Life Speak, um, says, you know, uh, vocation does not come from a voice out there, but you know, call me into something I'm not, but comes from a voice inside. Um, you know, I, I'm saying, okay, that can be true. And in my community for a young boy, who's just trying to make it, that voice has to come from outside. Vocation absolutely is a call from these people who call us to life. In this case, the Christian brothers, my grandmother and my dad. And that's really important to honor them in the, in the work that they play and the role that they play in the lives of young people to do that calling. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more concretely about the Christian brothers and, and what that relationship was like and maybe what they saw in you? You know, again, I, I think they're they're tied to their vocation around supporting young men and developing young men and women developing into good Christians, essentially, uh, in the future. And when I was in junior high, a man who was um, when my parents had split up that my mom was dating at the time, had a bunch of abuses on his own. I call him the stranger in my book. Um, used to like to beat me up quite a bit. And one day I went into school in the um, one of the Christian brothers, the principal at the time, um, had this practice where he waited out in front of the school and just welcomed everyone to school. And so here I was all bruised and battered from the night before to the point where this uh, man had almost taken my life. And I'm I'm trying to make it to school. And he's standing uh, there and he says, you know, the the, you know, good morning, Patrick. And I just absolutely broke down in front of him and he recognized that it was, uh, I remember blurting out, you know, I didn't do my homework because, you know, when you're, when you're uh, one of the only Brown kids, you know, we came from you know my side of town, the school, cause it was a private school it was mostly uh, white students, probably about half were white students. And not a lot of us had opportunities to go to school. I felt like I was going to lose out on this other opportunity, which was to get this great education. So there you are having almost lost your life and you're like confessing that your homework's not yeah, done. Yeah, my homework's not done because the night before yeah. I was too busy getting beat up to finish my homework. So I'm trying to uh, level with him. And he just puts all everything aside, asks for a, a pen and a paper so he can write me a note to get out of homework and just said in our meeting in that first period that um, there was nothing that happened on that campus, on Palmas campus in Salinas, that I couldn't be a part of. Sports, um, extracurricular activities. I could stay on campus for as long as I needed. And just knowing that I had a safe place to be for a long time was a real concrete way that he, I imagine saw the bruises. He never, we didn't talk about it, but I imagine he saw the bruises. I imagine he saw the brokenness um, that I was bringing to the table and he uh, made space and made sure I understood that that was going to be a space that I could be for, you know, my full six years that I was there and stay as much as I did. And I took advantage of it. Um, I was there from seven fifteen, from the you know, crack of, you know, band startup till late at night when sports um, got off. So I'd like to return to a conversation about your grandmother and stories of ancestors more generally, but um, you connect them with a lot of different biblical narratives throughout. So I'm curious how that reads the other way. Are there ways in which your relationship with your grandmother or others who have come before you help you read scripture? Yeah, I mean, for my grandmother, it was in the book, I make the connection to Miriam in particular and how uh, Miriam uh, serves for the people 
kind of the corrective matriarch to what I think is pretty poor leadership on uh, Aaron Moses's part uh, at a whole bunch of times. So, um, so one's kind of taking care of, of the women, the children, the vulnerable, um, leading out in front. I, I think that that is my grandmother to a T, you know, she, she held that space for all of us. And I wouldn't be able to read those stories in that way if I didn't have strong uh, women like my grandmother leading our family. Cause it wasn't my grandpa who did any of that work. It really was my grandmother who did all the healing work. And recently I've been kind of reflecting back on the story of Ishmael and my kind of connection to uh, Ishmael as a, as a character and thinking through what does it mean to be a cast out son with no inheritance and uh, violence from birth till young adulthood? And what does it mean for to have a grandmother who held a space where in our in our larger society was kind of cast out and not valued for her gifts and her love that she gave to, I mean, she's a saint within the Bakersfield community, especially within the Reyes family and the Contreras family. Um, and um, how do how do we honor that? How do we lift folks up who are in our local communities that are doing that work on behalf of our families every day, aren't getting paid for it, and are becoming saints? You know, I, at, at her funeral, I didn't put this in the book, but at her funeral, I said that, you know, she should be a saint. And it was a Catholic mass and um, the priest had fallen asleep <laughs> during the thing. <laughs> You know, like he was just kind of in this uh, mode where he was just burying another person. Um, he was a transplant, not from the Bakersfield community. And in front of a packed house where there's standing room only, you know, I'm yelling on the microphone for him to wake up because he needed to listen to who he should be valuing as a, in our in our communities. Um, so without her, I wouldn't be able to read scripture or think about these stories around strong uh, leadership, about the people who heal our communities, especially women in this case, that those healers are the ones that we should be lifting up and who are often not up on stages, who are not writing books, who are not on the microphone, but are who are spending a lot of time, as my grandmother did, making sure everyone had food to eat um, or play a roof to stay in or the resources they needed to get to move their lives forward. Yeah. So you've, you've called her a healer just now. How do you think she understood her own sense of calling. I don't think she would understand her. I don't think she would even have language for calling. You know, she was a, she uh, participated a lot in church. Um, she had her own kind of healing practices, but I mean, she was a Roman Catholic, Mexican Roman Catholic woman who uh, loved the Pope, you know, practicing local stuff, you know, at her local congregation, you know, all the four generations of races were born, baptized and married in the same church. Um, so she had a very kind of sense of localized, responsibility. She was a compliance officer for a local high school after all of her kids went, you know, left the house. Um, so she was helping keep kids in school. Uh, literally, she would, you know, go to their house and say, you need to get back in school. Um, so she had this sort of sense that she just lived into. And I think that, I mean, that's part of why I want to capture her story or at least how she influenced me in the book, because she didn't walk around and say my, you know, like, you know, seminary, my vocation is to save young Chicano kids or save Reyes boys from being idiots. You know, she just did it. I mean, this was the, this was just the work she was called to, to do, which was to love our family and love the kids in our community. And that's, to me, those are the folks who are living into their vocation. They don't have to explain it to anyone. They don't have to say, I've been called to do X, Y, and Z. They're just, they're doing the work they're at, They're doing it every day. Um, so I think that's how she experienced her call, and that's how she definitely lived it out. It was in the action of it, not the articulation of it. 
like the verbal Correct, yeah. finding the right words for it. So that brings up a question I have about your experience in seminary. You write about this kind of bewildering, well, maybe bewildering is my interpretation of that moment, but when people were going around the classroom, identifying <laughs> yeah. their vocation, tell us about that moment and what that was like for you. It's funny because I'm still friends with all those folks. So it's like funny to, that they read that same section. And they can put themselves in that moment. But, you know, it's a similar to, you know, every Master Divinity student who's thinking about a call to ministry of some sort. We're sitting in a big circle kind of thinking about what we mean by call, vocation, and majority white. There's only two students of color is me and one other uh, student of color who's actually from the neighborhood in Boston. And they're going around the circle and they're saying things like, oh, I'm going to be a social worker so I can... Uh, disrupt poverty or you know i'm going to do gang gang intervention or i'm going to do all this stuff and it was all these like dreams that they had been called to do this stuff and i had to basically go back to places like salinas and do help work and or saving work and i'm sitting in this circle thinking as they're naming all these things like well i didn't even know you could get paid to do any of that like that's that stuff that we do in our community anyways you know like feeding People who don't have food, that is something that my grandmother did. She made, you know, I can still uh, smell the her making fresh tortillas or tamales, you know, at the end of the year to give out because that's what you did. You fed people, you know, gang intervention wasn't a wasn't a uh, profession as a you know part of social work or doing a gang ministry wasn't part of social work. It was part of the work. If you don't want your house shot on the block, you got to actually relate to your neighbors so it was all this kind of like professionalization of stuff that communities of color and especially marginalized communities like the one I came from have to do on the day to day anyways. And so I, I was like both frustrated and yes, bewildered that what they were naming was uh, something that they came to get a professional degree for to go back and get paid to do. And, you know, and part of it was the, I wish I would have known that sooner. My CV would have been longer when I went to seminary in my application uh, but it was it was a it was an eye opening experience just about how different communities think about doing work that there is a professionalization of of that of that ministry work for some communities in, in a way that at least in the Latino community at least the com- community I grew up in um, that was the work of the neighborhood. And so after your first year, you actually decided to quit seminary. Yep. Tell I, me about that decision and how that was eventually reversed. Well, so part of it was I was told in seminary that um, I didn't belong. Uh, part of the, the story that I tell in there was I was uh, sitting in a class and I was essentially pulled out during a exam. Um, I was paying for my education by hanging sheetrock, uh, which I was uh, fortunate enough to learn how to do some trade skill stuff. My uh, family in Bakersfield, you know, they hang rock. That's, you know, what my cousins and my uncle do. They run a company that does that. And I did that for them for a couple summers and, so I was doing that out in Boston to make ends meet, put food on my table while I was receiving this education. And I got an opportunity one night to work through the night to help build out an apartment complex out in Revere, which is already kind of far away from the campus. So I spent all night earning cash um, so I could pay for food. And then I showed up to this exam, still covered in this drywall dust, which for those you know who don't know, it's, it's white you know, gypsum. I mean, it's just white plaster all over me. And I'm sitting in the class and I'm the teacher was right. I, I, I named it that I did smell, you know, I've been working, I've been doing hard labor, hanging as much rock as I could the night before. And I wasn't really all focused. And I was kind of pulled out of class and said, you know, this, this isn't for everyone. You know, if you're going to be serious, um, you need to be here. 
because you're a distraction to the more serious students. And I took so much offense that I still take offense to it that I realized that this is between that circle conversation where there's professionalization of stuff I was already doing back home or teachers were doing back home and this sort of sense that I wasn't good enough to study scripture, for example, that I could do the ministry work back home in the ways that we were already doing it. And so I went back home and I was working quality assurance uh, for a packing shed. So I was looking at... I was counting the number of tomatoes that had water spots on them, the number of broccoli florets that had flowered. I was just, you know, doing menial labor 10 hours a day, just kind of looking at stuff. And I had given up on the dream. And two uh, kind of things happened simultaneously. One is I got a phone call from a classmate who happened to come in the second semester there um, while I was there, another student of color who wasn't from the Boston area who said, you know, Patrick, you got to come back. Your story's powerful. You need to be here. The world needs you. It was, and I'm, you know, forever grateful for that phone call because it came out, out of the blue. I wasn't expecting a phone call. Um, it was weighing on their heart. You know, it was a, I didn't write an email saying I'm not coming back. Just that the, her sense was that I wasn't coming back. So she gave me this call to say, come on back. And the other one was my best friend who also, could, the same person who called me out for always running, um, we go on a walk actually at the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake out near Santa Cruz. Um, so we're under these redwoods. It wasn't a natural environment for either of us. We're kind of getting out of our element, walking on the weekend. And I'm telling him about how I'm going to stay in Salinas. I want to hang out with him and his family. And we're going to raise kids together. And they're going to play, you know, same sports teams that we played on when we were little and do all the same things we did. And he pretty vehemently said, you know, um, no, you know, that's BS that I got this uh, opportunity to, to go and get a, a higher education, get education, uh, which wasn't afforded to him. And that I had a responsibility to the community in our neighborhood to uh, tell our story and to not let them get me, not let them get the best of me. Cause he knew I was, I was smart enough to hang with, with all of them. And that was really, I mean, he kicked me in the butt to say, you got to go back. So luckily I hadn't unenrolled yet. Um, but the, if I hadn't had that conversation with him, I, you know, I probably, I'd still be in Salinas, you know, probably working, probably the same packing company, which is there's nothing wrong with doing that work. But it, if it wasn't for a good friend like that to say I was called to do different work in the world to give voice, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. So you explore the racial dynamics of, of your educational experience. And I mean, you summarize it as the game is rigged. You were navigating a system that wasn't designed for someone with your particular story. How did that affect the way that you heard God's call? There's that sort of, I mean, just a name for the listeners, if they don't know, I, I hope they do, that, you know, the Harvard Nine, the original kind of seminaries in North America, the folks who went to Harvard to establish a seminary, theological education, it was for male pastors. And all the curriculum is really designed, even in the PhD education, still with that sort of foundation. It's at, at its core, it's... Anglo, it's, you know, super white, male, patriarchal, like all that stuff is, it's colonized, it's baked into that. I had this sort of foundation that was different. It was a different orientation towards hearing God's call, um, that God's call was going to come from the community because of faithful people and the, and the languages and the formalization of vocation or a theology of vocation have been so whitewashed, uh, you know, reflecting back, I was pretty mad about that, you know, like, why am I not reading 
Latinos. I mean, this should be obvious, given just the demographics of the U.S., we should be reading Latinos, or I should have Latino professors, which I didn't have. But on the flip side, now that I'm at the Forum for Theological Exploration, and um, you know, I support a historic program that has been supporting scholars of color in religion for nearly 50 years, I think how sad, how sad it is for theological education, not just for people of color, but for all folks who are going through theological education, that people are missing out on the on the joys and the gifts that, that, that our communities bring to the world. Uh, you talk in the book a little bit about soil and kind of what the soil was like when you were in seminary, but it's one of my favorite analogies that you use. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the theology of soil came from, um, you know, the, I was talking about the ground underneath our feet and thinking about that very in a raw way. So... Um, wherever your listener is thinking about literally the, the space underneath their their feet and what's that texture feel like? What does the ground smell like? And the story I tell at the time was, um, so I, I wasn't working in the fields anymore. I kind of gone through my education piece and I went for, I was trained for a marathon, um, which is its own sort of like pushing endeavors and limits. And I went out for an early run in Castroville. Castroville, there's this nice little path that goes along Route 1. Um, that goes from Castroville, which is all like artichoke and lettuce fields, straight to the ocean. So it's a beautiful run. I mean, just one of the most gorgeous runs um, in the country. And I got there super early in the morning and Castroville's inland. It's surrounded by fields. I take off on this little dirt road and I hear my name at like 530 in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, there is no way that someone knows me out this early. First of all, it's not bright enough for anyone to really like see, you know, like the deep depictions of anyone's faces or anything. But it was a buddy from elementary school who was uh, working in the fields. And what was really interesting, it was dark enough that, and in the Salinas Valley, fog is like a pretty regular thing. The soil was pretty damp and I couldn't really see a whole lot. I mean, they have a light and wasn't using my cell phone or anything. Um, So there was like mix of like wet mud and like hard trip hazards because it was the road where the trucks drove on. And he told me to watch out, watch my step to where I go. And I totally like theologize the heck out of that moment because I realized that running on this, this road served kind of two pro- this soil that I was standing on. The soil itself wasn't growing anything. It was the dirt that surrounded the field. It was literally where the field supervisors, who are mostly white, would drive their truck around to make sure people were working. And so here I was standing on this kind of boundary line and then watching my buddy who I grew up with, who was the smartest kid. I mean, I, he was the smartest kid in my uh, second and third grade class and watching him go to work in the fields and knowing that I kind of had some, I, I had to pay some sort of attention to the soil that my feet were literally on. And I could continue to run on this kind of pathway for as a, you know, a metaphor for my life run on this pathway that was not designed for me. It was designed for white folks to make sure brown folks stayed in the fields. Or I could let my work and my call follow my buddy into the fields and honor those traditions and, and stories that are there. Which ones were, which ones was I going to fall? Which, which communities was I going to be a part of? Cause you know, in higher education, uh, socioeconomically upper mobility with education, I mean, able to not have to work in the fields anymore. So now this is a choice about which communities I'm going to represent when I'm here and who do I serve. And so I I talk about that soil, the theology of the soil. What ground do you come from? And is it good soil to grow stuff in? And to say that just because it's good soil doesn't mean 
you know, everything grows all the time. You really have to tend to it. So I was really kind of paying attention to that. You know, the, a lot of the ways of reinterpreting people say, you know, they follow the footsteps of Jesus. I was looking at literal indentations of our shoe prints and thinking, which footprints am I going to follow? Am I going to follow the path of the field supervisor? Am I follow the path of my friend? Wow. Do you get comfortable with that decision or is it just always a little hard? It's always, it's always uncomfortable. I'm talking into a microphone, uh, looking at a MacBook, uh, thinking about how to honor these stories and tell these stories. And I know he's working in the fields right now. Um, so that's not a, it's not a one off decision. You know, so I said at the beginning, survivor's guilt is a thing. Um, so trying to live into this tension of, you know, being able to capture the moment in writing is how I've been called and being an administrator and in this field of theological education and um, choosing who to honor and what stories to tell is a, is it comes with a lot of, it also comes, you know, with all the challenges it comes with, it also comes with a lot of privilege. So kind of living in between those two worlds. So what kind of advice or encouragement or challenge would you want to give to other people who share this kind of vocation, who, who call others, to life or to live? Um, I've been thinking a lot about this right now as a Latino and the stuff that's happening on the border and uh, discerning vocation with the idea that there are children in cages, you know, being able to discern life in that moment or try to figure that out and try to help our children, our next generation, think about how God is calling us to this moment. I was doing a ending mass incarceration event down here at Ebenezer Church uh, Baptist Church was, you know, where Dr. King served back in the day. And this large event was think about any mass incarceration. And we were on a conference call uh, talking about just, you know, the theology behind all of that and how we we're going to celebrate this. And it was really in a black white dynamic. And I got really upset. I was yelling on this same microphone. Um, what about the children? They're locked in cages. These are our, these are our kids uh, that need to be called to life and um, felt like I was, I shouldn't have to be arguing that, but I did. And I, I got off the call after screaming for a good while and pretty upset by the fact that we, even in the justice oriented focus, we couldn't like, we couldn't give time and attention to these kids who've been locked in cages. And I see my son who's standing behind me with just fear and terror in his eyes, uh, asking if I was going to get locked up and if he was going to get taken away. Um, and knowing that our call, our call as, as adults now is the, um, the group that's going to call the next generation of life, I am, I am responsible for making sure my Latino son uh, knows that he has every right to live, uh, every right not to be in a cage, and that our work as a community is to make sure those kids who are locked in cages are out and can find a way to life. I'm, and that's for folks who are doing that work. There's nothing more important than that. And so I've just been encouraging a lot of folks to really think and take inventory. Where are those places where life may not be, isn't taken for granted, where people are on the brink and what are the ways that we can intercept, step in like it was for me and for communities um, like mine, for people to step in and call others to life. I think that's just, that is the work. That's what God is calling us to. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amar Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit 
thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.